0: Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Pierre Larence. Because I work in art, my Instagram feed is full of images labeled with the hashtag work The sentiment these tags convey is perhaps uncontroversial, but the history of art's relationship to labor is complex and far from stable. Well, working aesthetics... Labour, Art and Capitalism, which is a recent book by Danielle Child, traces this history and explores the critical potential of thinking about art as labour. Danielle Child is Senior Lecturer in Art History at Manchester School of Art, and I'm very happy that she joins me now to talk about her work. Welcome to the show, Danny. Thank you. Well, it's a pleasure to have you. Before we get into the book itself, it would be great to give our listeners an idea of how you arrived at your subject matter.
1: So my interest in art and labor actually goes back to my undergraduate studies. So um, I studied art history at the University of Leeds um, and I stayed there to do my master's and my PhD as well. Um, and while studying on my, under, actually on my undergraduate, uh, my BA at, at History of Art, I realized that there were other people who made works of art for artists. So it wasn't just the, the artist in the studio on their own making works, but that there were other employed workers, assistants, um, and later I discovered the fabricators who were making works of art for artists. And one of the things that kind of drove my interest is that I, I really wondered why these people weren't being spoken about within art history. That in many ways these, these workers were were invisible in the dominant narratives about history, um, and I should also say that I I come to this subject from a kind of a personal perspective as well. In that I come from um, a working class background. Um, my father was a manual worker. Um, he was a mechanic, and and so my interest in thinking about where the kind of workers are in in these histories this kind of um, obfuscation of the workers uh, was kind of driven by obviously my history of of coming um you know being around workers and and thinking about um class and identity we within this um so i i want to know more and i want to make them visible so uh, by the time um I got to PhD and obviously then developing that that research um for the book I was really quite interested in in figuring out um or discovering who these workers are and how they work and how that sits in relation to the kind of the wider economic conditions um and those of capitalism so um you know, my, my research even now, um, after, after publishing the book, is still around class and working conditions and labor and how this manifests within artistic practice. Um, and a key thing within the book and, and within my, um, my contemporary research as well is, is about the, this um, visible-invisible dichotomy. You know, at what point are the workers being made visible within contemporary art
0: practice. Well, class and labour are definitely protagonists in the book. And you open the volume beautifully with a reproduction of a 1874 painting by Eric Crow, which shows um, a group of women in a street in Wigan in northern England. And this painting hangs in Manchester Art Gallery in the city where you are now. And you remark on the fact that the 19th century criticism of this work centred on not... Not the art itself, not the painting, but rather the general unsuitability of the subjects, the working class women, um, which are depicted in it. So, this seems to be like a very good way to get into the long and twisted and and quite difficult relationship between art and history and labour.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So, um, the book starts in the 1960s. um, And I should say that its main focus is the contemporary, but this Opening chapter really starts at this point in which um what's known as the de-skilling thesis, which was made popular by thinkers like Harry Braverman um in the 1970s, where this de-skilling of work begins to kind of manifest under capitalism. So where I guess historically craft-based skills um embedded in manual work begin to be um fragmented um so uh kind of uh conditions like fordism or economic um working models like fordism in which the assembly lines introduced and and work is um is made piecemeal and the worker just gets to to undertake one small part of a of a larger process of work um so I look, I look at this moment in which these skills are being fragmented in relation to the, um, the emergence of art fabrication firms in the US that are solely kind of dedicated to um, fabricating works of art for artists. So firms like Lippincott Inc., um, who are the, the main case study for this first chapter, but also Carlson & Co. as well. Um, and these are fabrication firms who um, were who employed by artists to make large scale sculpture. So, the work that you, of the minimalists um, and artists like Clay Soldenberg, these um, kind of works have been fabricated by these, um, these art factories, if you like.
0: Well, you do give a sense of the mismatch between the ideas of minimalism and the factory scale of the productions
1: the first chapter really focuses on this moment and, and brings us up to the 1990s where Lippincott Inc. Um, adapt their work in practice. So um, they, uh, if memory says correct, they get rid of their kind of um, their physical uh, fabrication site and they they begin to subcontract to um, to other companies. So they their their in practice shifts from one where everything's kind of made on site to one which utilises the knowledge of um, of people like Donald Lippincott who who was the uh, you know the head of of Lippincott Inc. Um, and used his networks and his knowledge to be able to to meet with artists and kind of discuss their needs and then contract out certain bits of work depending on what kind of um, skills need to be employed. And so the second chapter picks up um, this moment in the around the 1990s um, and moves to London to look at the emergence of the Mike Smith Studio, um, which is a kind of fabrication uh, company um, but that builds itself as a facilitators rather than fabricators. So you've got this kind of this shift in in terminology from you know one that's aligned with making to one that's aligned with kind of assisting, um, which I think is quite important. Because while in the US the fabrication companies like Carlson and Co are kind of re um, are reformulating. How they work and, and realigning their practices with one that's contracting Outwork work, um, and especially with Max Maxmi Studio is developing this business model that that has that from the from the kind of outset. In some ways, um, and really, this chapter kind of focuses on on how this works in tandem with the establishment of neoliberalism in the UK so a kind of a, a very kind of specific form of it and looking at David Harvey's ideas of flexible uh, flexible accumulation um and this shift to a mode of working that's about kind of flexible work part-time subcontracting and and how the economic conditions allow for a studio like the Mikesmith studio to be able to emerge and kind of flourish under these new conditions um and and within this as well is a figure of Mike Smith as this um this project manager um who I read in terms of um eve boltansky uh sorry Luke Boltansky and Eve Kiapello's great man in the Projective City from their book The New Spirit of Capitalism. so I read it again against these kind of these changes within managerial and business models um and there's a kind of an understanding that without Mike Smith, the studio wouldn't be what it is. It's his knowledge um, that the kind of makes the studio and sustains it.
0: Well, so we've cleared along from the idea of a fabricator to a facilitator and a producer in a mere couple of decades.
1: And then the third chapter takes us to uh looking at the model or the figure of the project manager but in um the artist within that role. So I look at um the artist Thomas hershom who um is a, a well known um artist who who engages in, in making kind of material objects but also these projects which are kind of um uh, socially engaged um fixed duration projects in sites that are often away from the gallery well always away from the gallery space um and kind of tangentially linked to um uh, art fairs or you know kind of sponsorship by um say the Gramsci Monuments dear Art Foundation fund it. Um and so I I kind of consider the artist in this role of project manager. What happens when Thomas Herschon becomes the person who's bringing together these networks and managing um, work that takes place in building and bringing together these monuments, which have a number of moving parts, um, whether it's building libraries and snack bars and um, holding poetry readings and events and open mic nights. And they, they all take place with the local um, inhabitants of and they're often on housing estates um with people from kind of um mixed ethnic backgrounds. so he doesn't want to to make these works necessarily for an art audience. he's interested in engaging the people who live in these communities um to build these projects. So I also read him in tandem with um the ideas coming out of the new spirit of capitalism as well, thinking about how, Um, Hershon exists as this autonomous artist whose work is subsumed under his singular name, but it's about facilitating these projects that include many hands and and many workers who are paid um, to to help build and realise these projects. So the first three chapters are kind of based around making I guess kind of loosely but you've got these two kind of fab, the fabricator the facilitator and the project manager um and the the final three chapters um, turn to look at more immaterial skills and we're already moving into immaterial skills with project management and building networks um and knowledge um but within chapter four I turn to look um at immaterial labor and the labour of the call centre. So the case study in Chapter 4 is um, Rumini Protocol's cutter in a Box, which is um, a, a one-to-one fun play. So it's a play that takes place over the telephone between one participant and one actor. Um, but the actor is playing themselves <laughs> <laughs> so he, he, and the, as a worker in a call center. Um, and they're based in in Calcutta, in India. Um, it's a play that kind of reveals um, through conversation kind of assumptions. And it's often, um, it's predominantly Western audiences. So the play has been performed at a number of different kind of performance festivals over the over the years um so you've often got this kind of revelation of people's assumptions about the call center workers in india um, and throughout throughout the play this is kind of revealing you get to see the worker you might dance with them by the end of it you share a cup of tea um and and all these different kind of uh aspects unfold and i read this against the shift to to immaterial labor within again under neoliberalism within contemporary capitalism um and how this kind this these plays work um in tandem with this image cuz the the worker the actor is is being employed to perform which is pretty much exactly what happens in a normal call center exchange, huh, certainly. <laughs> so that you know, there's this kind of moment of, I guess, making a think about uh, this, Well, first of all, the global displacement of labour. you know, um, thinking about these call centers that at the other side of the world, again, serving um, a Western audience. Uh, but also just thinking about about what that work is. You know what where I guess where are the differences and where is it aligned um through being employed to to talk to someone um with a script, just like you would under normal kind of call center circumstances as well. And um but it also subverts that relationship by having a real kind of personal conversation with the the person on the other end of the call, the viewer. So it, I mean it's a really complex kind of interesting um set of ideas to unpack but that again as I say is read against immaterial labor so I start to look at um theory from kind of post-autonomia Italian thinkers and also people like um Michael Hart as well and Paolo Vino, um and, and unpack these ideas and this is taken through to chapter five um w- in which I look at the kind of the performative qualities of effective labor, which is another form of immaterial labour, in relation to the art activism of Liberate Tate. Um, and I read, I read a, a couple of their works. Um I'm really, in terms of thinking about Time Piece, which was a piece that was um Performed, enacted in um, in the turbine hall in Tate Modern, thinking about how that space of the turbine hall um, is is kind of a public a public space. It's it's open to to anyone to enter, um, and how that kind of allows for this unsanctioned performance to take place. Um, and I read this through thinking about the idea of the virtuoso. Um again from from Paolo Veno's um writings, and the virtuoso was historically aligned with the politician. So thinking about that kind of um how liberate it re I guess reappropriate or realign um the political with the performative in order to undertake these these very kind of um political actions that are that are asking for take to um to end their relationship with BP as a sponsor of the galleries and so and i I read the, these works as also being um able to take place because they look like the other things that would happen in the turbine hall. so the uh a visitor to, to Tate Modern isn't sure if it's sanctioned or not. Um and they have Liberate Tate had this interesting relationship with the Tate. So when um when they gifted, they tried to gift um a, a propeller from a wind turbine to the Tate in one of their performances called The Gift. Um, Tate refused the gift, but they kept um, the documentation, and it's in the Tate archive. So there's that real interesting relationship with Tate and Liberate Tate as well. They've not rejected them as kind of activists um, who who come and disrupt their space. So you know, by you know, what does that mean to to take the documentation and and place it in the archive in in the space that they that they're undertaking these actions.
0: Well, we seem to have gone full circle from the industrial specularities of Lippincott's fabrications in times of minimalism to the industrial spectacular of a wind turbine at Tate. Now, but you end the book with an example of a practice that is far less material than either of these and an example that's a little bit closer to what's happening in the news at the moment.
1: The final chapter then moves on again to another group who um, who have been engaged in activism in the digital realm, uh, which is eToy and I look at digital labour. So I should say that each um, each chapter takes a, a model of labour and a case study um, and reads the case study in relation to this model of labour that's contemporaneous to the. Um, the moment in which these um, these works are taking place. So with chapter six, we move on to the digital, and I revisit um, the idea of the neutrality of machinery under capitalism, which is something that comes out of Marx's fragment on machines, and is then taken up by um, Reniero Pansieri in. Um, i think in the 1960s i think it's 64 um where he he takes up this idea and talks about the kind of the the capitalist use of technology so in this final chapter i read um i read two. i look at Itoy's early kind of uh hacktivist action the toy war um but I also look at a work on Mission Eternity, which is a really complicated um work to, <laughs> to try mm-hmm. and explain. Um it's described as a digital post-mortem. Um and it's it's effectively where um you would sign up to have this kind of digital record of of your life um uh, what's the word, kind of saved for eternity. Um and then there are material aspects of this where um, there's a kind of a I guess a performative aspect of it where um, part of after death part of the human remains are, are made into um, an object the actual digital content is is actually held across many different um, sites so it's a peer-to-peer um, form of networking which is something that we might elaborate on a little later in relation to the kind of recent shifts in in digital artwork that have kind of come about in in the last few um months so this i guess this last chapter really um starts to think about how d- certain digital forms of labor can actually overcome or avoid Becoming part of capitalism, or avoiding that kind of system that creates profit, um, which which I think happens with this peer to peer practice that uh, Etoy are engaged in.
0: Well, Danny, thank you. This is quite a tour de force. <laughs> thank you so much. And and for me, who's someone who's not an art historian and who works in the contemporary, it's particularly interesting to see in so much vivid detail the story of the fabricators and the facilitators. Um, again, the 1960s, which seems to be a turning point for so many things and artistic practices and ways of thinking about artistic production, never fails to amaze me how things happen in the US 20 or 30 years ahead of us here in the UK. So I want to use this example to ask you about the relationship between the availability of technologies and then the demand for those technologies being used in artistic production, which to me seems to mirror the the idea of capitalism exploiting certain material possibilities, but also being shaped by them.
1: I get oh this chicken and egg question. I'm not <laughs> I'm not sure if I want to offer a, well, a concrete answer to that. I mean for for me with within the way that um that I view Um, artistic practice the development of artistic practice I always read things against the economic you know what's happening I don't think that art exists in this kind of um, separate sphere away from everything that happens in um, quote-unquote real life so I mean I guess for me this process of de-skilling within dominant work is occurring at at the same time that artists are moving away from painting and particularly within the us we have you know the 1960s is this point of high modernism where particularly within art criticism with someone like clement greenberg you've reached this this saturation point of of what modernist painting is and it's been reduced to these cardinal norms um you know flatness opticality um all all these kind of um things that we that we now kind of reduce Greenberg's writings to, and artists begin to respond to that. They don't necessarily want to be painters anymore. Um, you know, someone like Alan Kaprow who reads, uh, you know, the legacy of Jackson Pollock, where he reads kind of performances coming out of Pollock, is this kind of this this tipping point, I think, for um, for artists to begin to. Uh, to um, spread that into the, uh, you know, what Krauss has called the expanded field, I guess. Um, and so, within this shift, you've got the emergence of minimalism, which is often read as this response to a Greenbergian modernism, where um, where sculptors begin to think about, I guess, what makes sculpture sculpture. What are the qualities, just as Greenberg did with painting, what are the qualities that make painting paint, solely painting, two-dimensionality, um, and all these things, you know, within um, these debates within Art Forum, you know, with Donald Judd and specific objects. And, um, and Andre, Carl Andre gets involved as well. with And um, Robert Morris, you get this, this moment in which sculpture starts to kind of turn into objects and think about what what is it about sculpture that makes it exclusively sculpture and I think minimalism comes out of this so that within this there's an eradication of the artist's hand of gesture and so the employment of a fabricator then further distances the artist from the making of of their work but I mean there's also within this is also the question of scale so at this point sculpture becomes public sculpture becomes larger in scale and so practically um a single artist cannot manufacture a a large scale piece of work out of metal on their own and there are all these skills that you need to do that such as welding and um you know whatever else so when Lippincott Inc emerged, it, it was to facilitate this um, this fabrication of these large-scale kind of public works that were going to be often cited outdoors. And we, within Lippincott Inc, there's also this, um, I've forgotten how they frame it, like um, a land in which these works can also be kind of um, displayed, like a showroom, like an outdoor showroom.
0: So it's a... T- very, very weird setup for, for its time, I, as I understand. So they have both a sculpture garden, they produce the work, they display the work, presumably with the view to sell it or place it somewhere. But they also do something that we're quite used to seeing with blue-chip contemporary art galleries now, which is that they quite often finance the production. And what you said, I'm, I'm, I'm interested in a, what, to me, seems a bit like a paradox. So in this break with history, that results in de-skilling, there's a moment in which the artist no longer has the skills, no longer has the knowledge to produce the kind of work that they want to pr- produce. But in a kind of classic Marxist economic reading of um, artistic labor as being unproductive, one of the benefits of not trying to be productive is that it creates artistic autonomy. But I'm I'm seeing a, a paradox in the fact that. The artist doesn't want to be productive anymore, yet ends up relying very quickly on, on these massive mechanisms of incorporated manufacturers, their financing, their, their workshops, and so on and so on.
1: I mean, first of all, just to go back to unproductive labour, uh, the only thing that's not been produced in, in that understanding is profit. The artist, I guess, is, is still producing things but they're just not um a wage laborer they're not employed to producing so they're they're freely producing in that sense in terms of the knowledge um i mean one i think one of the things that that i say in the book is that you have this shift from kind of artistic skills in in this moment of de-skilling and employing fabricators to managerial skills so i um i recall this this kind of um the production of um a clay Oldenburg work within lippincott inc where he he sits on this chair that they've put a label kind of um director or something on on the back of the chair um and you you know he's kind of meant in jest but he's also sat there overseeing the production of these works and so what you know what role does the artist take then in that they're they're managing they're overseeing um they still they still have that control as to say um i i want the patina to be more shiny or you know to make those decisions so the 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 craft-based knowledge remains with the employed workers and i don't think that that the artist is de-skilled in that they in a in a kind of a negative sense, but that there's that that shift to a kind of a managerial skills. And I know that John Roberts um touches on this in um intangibilities of form when he he talks about this kind of this reskilling into immaterial skills. And he never really um qualifies that because he's not necessarily writing about immaterial labor in the contemporary period, but i think through through my book there's um there's a you can see at these points where the artist the artist's knowledge um is changing from one from handy handicraft production through to i mean to the very end to digital skills. And thinking about you know um learning the digital but within that you've got the performative you've got the project management you've got the networking um you know in a figure like um like thomas Hershon, his skills are very much within the way that he interacts with people and the way that he kind of facilitates these projects and goes into these communities and he with the Gramsci Monument, I think it was like 40 plus um, projects that he visited in New York until he found the people who understood that he wasn't going to go in there and do social work, but that he was saying to them, I want to do this project, do you want to work with me to make this? And I think there's something within the kind of the um, the personal skills and the of the artist the that, that facilitates that project, it's not about whether or not he's got the ability to build shacks you know on housing estates there's some you know, there's something different there. It's about how do you bring people together and get them to work without um without friction or if there is friction, uh, what how do you you know how do you deal with that how how is that um resolved? So, I think the artist's skills have have shifted from one which is tied to the hand to one which is very much tied to knowledge, and this is mirrored in the way that capitalist work has kind of transmuted into the contemporary where we we've had this shift to the service industries to effective labor to immaterial skills, so you know kind of dominant models of work and you know in in the west predominantly of have shifted um to these ones that are aligned with knowledge now rather than handcraft.
0: But I think a, a good example is in, in in your second chapter, which is the Mike Smith Studio. It's kind of a, a successor of Lippincott Inc. But in the in the UK, Mike Smith is a fabricator, first artist and fabricator to the whole generation of YBAs, young British artists. But for me, what's interesting about Mike Smith's studio is that the studio is the kind of temple, even more so than with Lippincott, like like it's almost that the fabricator here leads the production. You describe Mike Smith as the person who, who comes up with everything. So, so there, is, there is a kind of danger to all of this. When the artist lets go of whatever knowledge area they've carved out for themselves, they are automatically at the mercy of the collaborators.
1: In thinking about the Mike Smith studio, you're absolutely right. I mean, one of the, or a couple of times, I think in the chapter, I cite from artists who have worked with Smith that basically say, if something happens to this studio, um, British art won't look the same there's a polished aesthetic that accompanies Mike's Me Studio that once you've spent time looking um, at the at the works or the artists with whom he's worked, you can start to identify it.
0: It's quite surprising how many, you know, household names that the studio has worked with. we've got Rachel Whitred, we mm-hmm. have um Mona Hatoum and and countless others. I I think it would be interesting to move into Chapter four and your discussion of Rumini Protocols, Calcutta in a Box, which you've already alluded to. It's, mm-hmm. it's, it's an incredibly complicated project, which involves commissioning a call centre in India and performances.
1: I think the thing that, that's important for me about this chapter um, is is about making visible the worker, you know, this this idea that, that runs... Um, through the book particularly with call center work which you know is um, a a phone call is something that happens orally that you know you don't see the worker you you're you're normally um, undertaking a transaction you're trying to get off the phone as quick as possible Um, and what call culture in a box does is it forces you for almost an hour um, to have one of these phone calls um, and there are so many really kind of clever devices that are written into the script in order to to make visible the the working practices of the call centre. So um, at one point, there's something like the the actor worker um, coughs, and and they say something like, "Oh, sorry, I'm I'm eating a sweet." It's against the rules for us to do this, and through that device, you know the rules of the call center are then kind of um divulged to the person on the other end of the phone and you and you know it just exposes the kind of the conditions um of labor within these call centers and you you find out that the um the other call center workers who employed um as actual call center workers and not play performance um are, are working on different time scales so they they're speaking to people in australia um and the united states i think so they you know there's this whole kind of you realize that these are people on the other side of the world who are working during nighttime when you're talking to them during daytime i don't there's just a lot of really clever kind of devices that are Built into this play to expose these real conditions of labour, whilst making it a kind of a, a casual conversation. There are prompts, there are questions um, that the call centre worker asks the um, the viewer, the the participant. But really, on the script, there it says something like the main aim is really just to have a conversation. You're not really interested about selling, um, you know the. The audience member, something. It's about ha- having this conversation and getting to know the person on the other end of the phone better. um And there's one particular bit that I like where the worker shares an image, and they say something like, "Oh, who do you think this is?" And obviously, the audience member is meant to think that that the image is the worker. um And there's a, a further revelation that this is actually um, a kind of a, Domestic worker employed by the call center worker in the home, um, and suddenly those kind of the the class based um, assumptions are again kind of shifted. So you have another model of labour that the call center worker um, employs a domestic worker in the home, and that then the domestic worker is revealed. And you know, there's just like the, these kind of loads of ways in which work is made visible without naming it through the play, which I, which I think is really interesting. And this is all done through the same format of the, the call center work um, the, you know, typical call center work would employ. I think what's,
0: what's really interesting in this example is that we, we've really moved 360 degrees because it's now not the artist necessarily producing the labor. The artist is shining light on the labor. But how do these kind of modes of labor transfer critically into how we think about artistic labor?
1: So Rumini Protocol is interesting in that they're a collective of um, directors. So they're, they're not artists, in, they're not visual artists or so, um in that sense so I've kind of I've sidestepped in this chapter (laughs) to look at at performance a bit more because I think this is interesting so you know their work is very much in the conception in the writing I guess I don't really talk about this in the book in relation to this case study but your prompt has made me think that that the labor that happens here by remaining protocol is again knowledge work it's immaterial, it's knowledge production again, it's um it's research, it's script writing, it's finding places to work with. So the the call center worker on the other end of the phone is um based at a company called DESCON Limited, which is a real call center. And whilst they're performing for theatre goers, they're in um in a call center with people who were uh, who are working for other companies who are um who are not doing theatre work. And that relationship has to be, you know, negotiated as well. Where, you know, where do we cite the actors? Who do we work with? How does this relationship work? And I guess that's all those skills of the belong to the to the artist as again as facilitators, I guess, of of these new um practices. So, you know, even In thinking about relational aesthetics, the artist's skills are are shifting to immaterial skills at this point. If we think about, you know, um, Recruiter of Vanilla's cooking pieces, cooking in the gallery, or or the the, um, director's skills here are, are in this kind of conception and this writing of these scripts and this reworking. So every iteration is slightly different as well.
0: An aspect of uh, Remini Protocol's work, which I think takes us neatly towards the end of the book, with, um, in which you look at Etoy's practice, is the role of technology in shaping labor and our relationships with, with other people and relationships with labor. Um, so I wonder if, in a slightly unfair way, I could ask you to take us through the evolution of what one might naively think new technology Um, starting with the practice of ETOY in the 90s and early 2000s and maybe taking us to some of the implications of a recent technological, I'm not entirely sure whether it's a utopia or dystopia that we're living in.
1: Yeah, so ETOY's kind of early work um, starts in the 1990s, obviously, with the advent of the internet. So they're kind of utilizing digital skills and I guess things like coding um, to first of all, engage in in this form of hacktivism with the the toy wall that I briefly um, talk about in in this final chapter, but then they they move on in 2005 to um, to create Mission Eternity, which is,, um, as I already mentioned, this kind of uh, digital post postmortem that exists. Um that they produce for for people who sign up um to be part of the project, so one of the things I think is really interesting about mission eternity and and the kind of the digital labor is that it's dispersed that the the labor is all or is often done by anonymous workers who sign up to participate in the project and offer their kind of, their, their digital labor, um, to the project. So this happens in a kind of a peer to peer, um, process in which if you sign up, you dedicate something like at least 15 megabytes of space, um, and you download the, the program that, that runs in the background of, of your computer, um, and this holds some of the information, and some information is held on someone else's unit, et cetera, et cetera. And and so all this kind of this digital information is dispersed and it relies on on people continuing to to presumably run these programs um, in order for it to to keep going. All the software is um open source and freely available, so there's no kind of um, there's no uh, financial implication for someone offering this space, so it's run a not-for-profit organisation. So they run as a corporation, but it's not for profit. And I, th- in in this chapter, I I kind of suggest that they somehow bypass the kind of the the capitalist economic system, or they they avoid um uh, i guess the capitalist pro- process which is always about profit in in employing this peer to peer practice and i i think in the contemporary that that this kind of employment of peer to peer type um models has now become somehow a uh, subsumed by capitalism
0: (laughs) so that's that we 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 could have expected that i guess
1: yeah Uh, well i think it's cyclical isn't it because i guess within the book we see how these economic models are either appropriated by artists or inspired by artists so this dialectical relationship um and yeah, we've come to a point now, you know, outside beyond the book, um, where we have blockchain technology being employed to to value and monetize digital artworks. And I I've only just started to think about this. And I need to I need to think about it more carefully. Um, but all, already with um the non-fungible tokens being employed, in these um, these high value works of art, I'm thinking about the Benjaminian aura, um, and, and what that what that means. How we might rethink, I guess, the work of art in, in digital reproduction. Now, <laughs> you know, and the, this um, how can a digital work of art be unique?
0: Well, I'm, I'm going to quote a tweet from from someone who I think works at Christie's to to suggest that the aura has transferred now to the transaction itself, which I think is is a fantastic way to kind of leave us with a with a conundrum. And I wonder if I can ask you to speculate even further. We just talked about NFTs and and the conundrum that they are going to pose. To um, so not assuming that this is your your area of research, it would be great to hear where your work is taking you now.
1: So my current work is returning um back to ideas of class. So I've been I've been working on thinking about working class identity within contemporary art as well. Um, and returning to works like um Tracy Emmings' Why I Never Became a Dancer video from um the mid 1990s which is based in Margate and looking at the history um, of Margate in relation to um, Emin's working class identity and how that's embedded within um, within the video.
0: Last unfair question. Do you think the pandemic tests these ideas in any particular way or changes how we should think about artistic labour? So, Of course, we're in a situation where most of the world's creative producers have either been put on furlough, if they're lucky, or have just completely lost their incomes and the frameworks of validation and, and and so on and so on. Yeah. And thinking about their work through the lens of labor, which obviously places it in contention with ideas of labor that apply in any other industry, we kind of have to face really brutal realities of say supply and demand and sustainability of some of these practices.
1: One of the things that's become really obvious is who sustains. Well, who sustains society, first of all? You know, um, it's no surprise that the key workers that have been identified during the pandemic are people who are often the kind of the the lowest paid. So uh, again, my interest in kind of class relations comes into play there, but also within the art world as well. The people, um, it's really apparent that the people who sustain the art world are freelancers, freelancers, people on zero hours contracts so i think you know the the inequalities within the art world have become more apparent it's made visible these workers so the people who who were and were not able to apply for the the funding in the first instance to kind of um to maintain themselves during periods of of lockdown and and furlough in the uk um in terms of artistic labor you know a People haven't had access to, to their own studios to make work. I imagine that there's been a lot of kind of um, bedroom making, <laughs> um, you know, making it that, up. that
0: might not be that much of a change for many no, artists. No,
1: no, no. Well, of course, but um, I, you know, I think it's at the same time that, that these practices have, have been ad- adapting or, or, or just disappearing because of the pandemic. There's also this kind of this this narrative about how creativity can can help people through um through the pandemic. And there's this weird thing where creativity's been really valued and you know, things like Grayson's art club on TV where Grayson Perry's inviting people to make work and send it in. It is in complete contrast to the kind of the, the undervaluing of, of of the arts at the same time, you know, where, where funding particularly for freelancers wasn't there at the beginning. Um, and people who's, and I'm not just talking about the, the visual arts, but you know, the arts more widely like, um, uh, sound engineers and you know the people who um, are supporting performance and 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 gigs and festivals and so it, I think the pandemic al- allows us to see who who is sustaining and um, and hopefully a reconsideration of of how they're valued.
0: Well, let's get to work. We're speaking on we're speaking a day after the UK's toughest lockdown restrictions have been lifted, so I think there's there's a new hope on the horizon. Daniel Danielle yeah. Child, thank you so much for joining me.
1: Oh, thank you. Thank you so much for having me.
0: Working Aesthetics, Labour, Art and Capitalism by Danielle Child is published by Bloomsbury. I'm Pierre Dalance and the editor is Marshall Poe. Thank you for listening and join us next time.